Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jerome, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm excited for you to be here. You flew all the way up from LA just for this recording. We're here now live at the Sapien Impact Hub for an event tonight. So I was amazed to get you in before this. And I'm just really excited about this interview. But Jerome, before we start, I've done research. I know your background, but our audience doesn't. Can you give a brief kind of what you've been up to to this point? Sure. First off, I'm really glad to be back in the Bay Area. I did my undergrad at Haas School of Business at Berkeley. Loved my time there. Then went to the East Coast to New York University School of Law, where I uh, studied corporate law. I also took some mergers and acquisitions classes corporate finance. So I'm kind of a a business person trapped in a lawyer's body, so to speak. And since then, I I, I took a lot of time in real estate finance, worked for GE Capital, been an entrepreneur. And the last uh, almost five years, I've been counseling entrepreneurs all the way from startup through exit. And our practice really has focused on uh, mergers and acquisitions, growth capital, and fund formation at the firm Fogel & Patsmianos. So at Fogel Patsmianos, we work on growth capital, mergers and acquisitions, and fund formation. And so I really get a chance to see clients from the embryonic early stage all the way through when they're primed and ready for an exit. I love to do what I do, and I'm really happy to be here, Sean. So when a startup is going through an exit, can you give some suggestions for first-time founders going through that process? Yeah, and I think it's a really good point because when it's your first time, you don't know what you don't know. So I think the first thing is you need a team of advisors around you. You need, number one, you need an investment banker. You need somebody that's going to walk you through a process that's going to port buyers and has relationships and is going to ultimately do the things you can't do so you can stay focused on running your business. I don't want a founder to take their eye off the ball and you know become disheartened if a deal doesn't go through. So Number one, get your team around you, get your lawyers, your investment bankers. And, and then number two is you really want to match objectives. I don't think you just go for the best price because some buyers strategically will come in with a high price and they start to take more and more haircuts as they go through due diligence. So find the right buyer in terms of your objectives, your goals. What do you want to do with your employees? Is this a legacy? Is this... You know, do you want a high upside? Do you just want cash now? So you really have to match your objectives to the buyer. And then the other thing is, I advise every seller, read the docs. I know it's a lot of work. It takes time. I just talked to a seller today. He sent me a text, Jerome, I read the docs and I shot him a text back. I'm so freaking happy. And I'm so excited for you because he took the time just to at least know what's in there. So so when you get the docs, read them and, and you know, be patient. Deals do take time, but also just know that, that time can kill deals too. So you have to also move quick because windows shut as quickly as they do open. So talking to that investment banker, that accountant, that lawyer, how early in the process should they start talking? I mean, should this even be before or when they're thinking? When's too soon? Right. I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, Sean, stepping into the football field and just trying to, you know, walk into the end zone and just try to score a touchdown. You really have to be ready. You've got to, you've got to be prepped. You've got to be working out. You've got to be in good shape. So you've got to have, I would say, 
a couple years early, get your CFO, invest in banking, even talk to some attorneys and start to clean up the corporate governance, start to clean up the finances, start to think forward about estate planning and tax issues. So I, I really want, it doesn't always happen this way, but I would say a couple years early, at least starting to engage with people and getting to know who you want to work with. And then is you really going to have you know, a year of trailing income to, to go with? So I think you start earlier, you have a better chance. Reality is, you know, I think so, I work with, on, as a general counsel offsite. So I'm, I'm aware of the deals early, but some people come to me, unfortunately, after they've done a deal and they've made mistakes or they're, you know, they're already in the LOI phase. So it's harder, hard, easier said than done. You probably know it, Sean, but if you, if you can just get two years, be awesome. Maybe a year would be, I think, ideal even. Now, does that matter what type of company it is, whether it's a startup in the tech sector or a manufacturer? Yeah, it's a, that's a good point. I also, it also depends on how complicated a structure you have. If you're, if you're a smaller company and maybe kind of a closely held board, it's probably easier. The bigger company you are, you're, you're going to have to have like an M&A subcommittee that's going to have to approve things. So, so I think if you, if you have a simpler kind of closely held structure, I think that's going you know, to make things a lot quicker. If it's more complicated and bigger, you're going to have to start a lot sooner and it's going to be more a formal process. That said, too, the more tech you have, the more IP you have, you need, you need more time to get that situated. So I, I would really, uh, the more IP you have, I think the longer, longer you need. So if it's, a, if it's a simple kind of a retail business, that's one thing. But if you've got a tech, a heavy tech, uh, tech company with lots of IP, you, wanna, you need more time to really make sure we go through everything, make sure the IP is all straightened out and make sure there's no skeletons in the corporate governance closet, things like that. So yeah, the more complex, the, the more complex the company, the more time you need. So going back to the most basics, C-Corp, LLC, S-Corp, does that affect the time needed? Yeah, that's a good point. Most, you know, most sophisticated buyers, they, they want to step up in tax basis. So they want to, they want to purchase and uh, assets from an S-Corp or an LLC. Typically that said, if clients on a path to an, to an IPO and they're in a C-Corp, it's gonna, that's going to take some more time to figure out the tax consequences and what the buyer wants to do. Are they going to buy shares? And that may change the effect, the price a little bit. So I would say generally, you know, S-Corp LLC is kind of the standard vehicle to purchase assets from. That said, there's tons of other reverse mergers and other tactics that can be used. But I would say it's C-Corp will take a little longer than the S and LLC. Now, from the beginning, when you're talking to attorneys, sometimes attorneys try to take over the deal. Mm. What's your experience with that? Yeah, I've, I've, been in, I've been in a number of deals. I was working on a deal last year where it was clear this was attorney was based out of Chicago. It was a fine attorney, but didn't, I don't think, have the type of experience that was relevant to this deal. And so it was painstaking going through every single point by point rather than honing in on what are the top three or four things we need to get the deal done. I'm working on a deal right now where the other attorney is very experienced. So we're saying, okay, here's the four or five things we need to work on and we'll figure out the rest. Whereas this attorney was going from you know, paragraph one all the way to Z, we're on a phone call for four or five hours and really steering the deal and negotiating over every point, trying to win every point. So I, I think that the problem with that sometimes is um, attorneys can be deal killers and not deal makers. 
they can be if they try to win every point versus trying to win the deal. And I think it's an issue. And also as an attorneys, you got to be able to say to your client, listen, this is my legal hat that I'm putting on. I'm, I'm not making the decision. I remember I took a venture capital class with Scott uh, Perlin, who did the Smith and Walensky deal. This was years ago. And one of the cases we, we read about was it was, a, it was a, a deal that a VC was going after. And his attorney said, I don't like the litigation risk. I advise you not to do the deal. This is too risky. Well, the deal ended up being a 100x deal. And the venture capitalist said, I will never you know, take my attorney's advice again on this. So I tell clients that story all the time. I say, listen, I'm just here as an attorney. I'm looking from a risk perspective, but you need to really tell me what your level of comfort with risk is. And then we can adjust accordingly with how we go, go to docs. And then I also tell clients this, I say, green light, red light, yellow light. You tell me, is this a green light deal? You want to do this no matter what? Is this a yellow light deal where you have some concerns, you're caution, or just a red light deal where you say, hey, I'm, I'm not even sure I want to do this deal. You know, help me figure out what's really going on. So I, I kind of simplify for clients. You know, green light, yellow light, red light. What kind of deal is this? So then it sounds like the attorney and the client really have to be on board with the same risk tolerance. When, when does that conversation start? And does that have to be on both sides, the seller and the buyer side for the attorney and the client risk? That's, that's a good point. We had a, we had a, we were representing a buyer that came from, from China and was doing some real estate um, technology acquisitions and buyer had extremely high appetite for risk. So, you know, we were doing a deal where there was barely any due diligence provided and the buyer wanted to close. And I said, hold, hold on, hold on, wait a second. We've, we've got you know, to make sure that the assets are in the correct place. We've got to make sure that we have a proper um, escrow holdback in place. So, so have, have a buyer who has a really high appetite for risk. Oh, I have to slow down and push pause. On the other hand, I've, I've worked with a seller who went through the asset purchase agreement with a fine-tooth comb and was color coding notes and was having their accountant bring in notes. And so the person wanted to be involved in every little detail and was, I wouldn't say risk averse, but was way more concerned about risk than the typical um, seller was. So you have to gauge where your client is. And, and really, as, a, as an attorney, I'm advising the client and the client has to make the decision. I'm, I'm kind of telling you, here, here's where I think I like a caddy analogy if you play golf. Like, here's the shots. Here's the sand traps. Here's where I think you should hit. Here's a club. But ultimately, the, the, the client has to decide what they want to do. They, do they want to take a risky you know, uh, shot for the pin or do they want to kind of lay up and get to the green that way? It's really, it's really their choice and how they want to play the game. I'm just there to help them, guide them, and see, help them see what I see. So with that, this whole process... How involved should the CEO be in it? Should they be really hands-on or just, you guys are the experts, contact me in 90 days? <laughs> that it would be nice if that was the case. It's never, it's never that easy. But I, I think there's a happy medium. I think in the beginning, CEO needs to be very involved with the banker, putting the, putting the pitch together, practicing really understanding what, what needs to be done, and also understanding with the attorney kind of what the goals and objectives are then really needs to be involved in selecting the buyer. I advise people, even in COVID, please meet in person, build that relational capital early, fly out to them or they fly out to you. And the buyers don't, I mean, sellers don't always listen, but I advise them, please meet and just get a sense. Is this, is, do you feel like, buyer, I mean, 
our clients are really smart people and they get a sense of what's going on. So I want them to get that intuitive sense of this is a good deal or not. So I want you to meet in person. But then after that, once, you know, once the due diligence process is kind of underway in the APA, aside from them reading the APA and giving their comments and aside of APA for our listeners, ah, asset purchase agreement. So aside from that, I want the CEO to please go focus on your business. And I don't want you to start counting the chickens before they're hatched. It's a trite saying, but it's true. So I think if your C- if your CEO is listening, you can boil it down to this. You should be involved in, in getting the pitch together. You should be involved in selecting the buyer. Uh, I want you to read the, the APA and the other documents at least you know, just one time. And then the rest of the time, let your, let your advisors go to work and you focus on the business. And then it'll be a nice surprise when the deal closes and it, it'll be a beautiful thing. And, and if it doesn't close for whatever reason, then you've been running the business and hopefully your investment banker has another another buyer lined up and the exclusivity period has closed. And that's another thing. Really need to dial in that exclusivity period. It can't be too long. So if a, if a buyer is not moving at a good pace, then you can break, th- break talks off and start pursuing another buyer as well. That due diligence period. I mean, I've heard people sell in their business and that due diligence gets extended 30 days and then another 30 days. Six months later, they're still in due diligence. What are your thoughts when you hear something like yeah. that? I, I think I think you have to read between the lines of what's going on. So there are some cases where, and I've and I've I was working on a deal where a, a private equity firm that not all like this, but was drawing out due diligence. Why? Because they wanted to retread the deal and they wanted to renegotiate on financing. They wanted to see month by month the numbers coming in and. So that's one tactic you have to watch for. Another tactic that, that we can see sometimes is most, most shops are straight up and every deal that they're in front of them, they're trying to close. Some shops, they've got you know, 10, 15 planes that are in the air and they really only want to land five or six of them. So you have to discern what the buyer's true motives are. That said, if there's a real due diligence issue, okay, we can work through it. But at six months, there's no way. Even, even, even three, unless it's a really complex deal, we have to understand what's really going on. And, and so I think one thing is you have to check, like I said, is, is the buyer trying to, to stand due diligence for the purposes of renegotiating on the finances? Or is does the buyer have a number of deals going on and is looking to cherry pick which deals that they actually want to to close? You have to look at you have to look at kind of those two things. So it sounds like in that situation the buyer might be looking at a bunch of different options. What about the seller? How important is it for the seller to have many options maybe going into this? That's a that's a good point. You want you want leverage. You you don't want to have one deal that you're counting on you. And that's part of the investment banker's job is to, to line up a, a, a cadre of buyers. And I think that the really important thing is zeroing in on the objectives of what you're trying to accomplish, see what the right buyer is. And then you, you're, you are going to play a little bit in terms of gamesmanship, in terms of the pricing but you also do not want to burn bridges because you may come back to this buyer and say, Hey, we really, we truly, really did. We truly loved your proposal. The, the buyer that we went with actually didn't end up, end up being what we thought it was. We, we'd love to come back to you and see if you're still interested. So you have to be, think ahead 
do you, do you maybe want to come back to the second and third also rands? And that can happen sometimes. And sometimes it can be the third or fourth. So you, you've got to be, you don't want to, you don't want to give anybody a reason to get one back at you later on. You always want to do it with respect and knowing you may come back to them later. And what about, you'd mentioned before on contracts, reading between the lines, right? How does a, a founder go about, like, how do you coach them to do that? What advice do you have for them to be able to actually notice what's there? You mean in the deal or just, do you mean in, in the way the deal is progressing and the parties and their interests? How it's progressing the true intention. True. Yeah, that's, that takes time and it takes experience. I think that what, I think what can be frustrating for a first time seller is that every buyer says, we, we love the deal. We really want the deal. And then the buyer can get jaded when things fall apart and say, well, I thought they really wanted to do the deal. What happened? And so, and so it may just be, it could be part salesmanship on the part of the buyer, or it could just be they genuinely had an interest and maybe something in the deal, you know, may have scared them away. They, everybody has their own, their own, uh, pain, uh, pain points. So I think you have to look at the pace of the deal as a sign of how interested they are. If pace is moving forward, and I advise the attorneys to meet once a week. So we have a weekly call. That's what I advise. And also the deal side should have their own management calls and other calls. But if you see the pace of the deal starting to slow down, then that should raise a question in your head as, is there, what are the true intentions of, of the deal? Are they, are they about to pull out? Is there something else going on? So I, I look at pace as really a factor of, of true intentions. And then you could kind of gauge, well, why are they slowing down from there? Is it is it, is it they want to retread finances, the financial terms? Is it they have other deals going on? What's really happening? How would you suggest an entrepreneur go about it so they're attracting that huge exit? Ah, this is, this is a really good question. And I was talking to a board member last couple of weeks who, who had a fantastic analogy. So when you're in the early stages of your company, especially if you're raising capital, the initial people, the initial angels, friends, f- friends and family. When I was at Haas, they called it three Fs, friends, family, and fools, which is kind of funny. It's, it's not, that's not the truth, but it, there's some funny wisdom in that. So what the board member explained to me is the first round is the guppies. So you're kind of attracting the guppies to your venture. And then after you do the, the pre-seed and seed round, when you go to your series A round, you're going to start to attract some of the bigger fish. You can maybe attract some venture capital, maybe, maybe B firm, maybe a really strong angel, but then the fish, Sean, the fish attract the whales. So you have to think of it in steps. And, and for some companies raising capital, it's those initial angels that attract the fish that attract the whales. Now, if, if, and, and you can use that analogy for other contexts, if it's a strategic, you have to think about well, what do the strategics want? What kind of companies are they going after? You look at Disney's purchase of Marvel. You look at, you look at um, um, I think it was Maker. I think it was Marvel that produced, was Maker Studios. A- MLB has made some purchases. You look at, I mean, obviously here in Silicon Valley, there's tons of purchases that are going on. So you have to be really, really clear about what your targets, what are they looking for? Are they looking for, is it revenue? Is it users? Is it, is it data and information? Is it a platform that, that they're trying to buy? Now, the, the platform is going to increase the multiple. If a P firm knows, hey, if I buy your platform and I can, we can do add-on acquisitions, which to your, to, your, to your audience means that 
you can bolt on other companies to a platform. So you have to be very clear. What am I trying to build? Am I trying to build a platform? Am I trying to, to attract users? Am I trying to build cash flow? And so I, th- and then that way, and then that guppy fish whale analogy, then you can say, okay, what is the kind of the guppy stage? And then how does that guppy is going to attract the fish? And then now how, how am I going to position the fish to attract the whale? So think of it in stages. You're not going to go from startup to whale. You just got to think of it and break it up into, into phases and look at what the end, what the, what's the end goal trying to be and, and, and take it that, that road. That was interesting how you said that, you know, the angels might lead to the, the bigger investors to the bigger investors. How would you, before accepting anyone's money, kind of vet them to see if they're one of those people that will lead to the better outcome? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, and I've seen clients that are doing arm's length deals with, with new sources of capital, which is really hard. The, the clients that I'm seeing that are successful, they already have relationships. So uh, I'll give you an example. So a client that's on their fourth or fifth deal. And so they're able to get 10 or 20 people on the cap table within 30 to 60 days on their, on their pre-seed round. Now, once that happens, then they have relationships with one of the, one of the uh, angels who now has, because of their other venture, has a relationship with a, with a very well-known PE firm. And so then the PE firm comes in. And so what happens is that you have somebody that's on your cap table that you know have a relationship with, know, like, and trust. And that person now brings in this PE firm. So you're not kind of coming in cold. They're kind of doing some of the vetting and due diligence for you. So I think it's, it's really hard from what I've seen to come cold, brand new in a relationship and to attract institutional capital and you don't have a relationship. Now it happens, but I'm saying that what I'm seeing is that clients who have a track record, who have relationships, those relationships bring in their relationships and then that makes it easier. So you can... People who have done business with them because I've also had horror stories. I had a client who came to me I think they were going to give up 40% of their company for like this well-known VC firm. And I, and I think VC firms are great. And I, we represent some of them. But, but I said, hey, this is a lot of your company. I think you can do this on your own. He said, no, no, I want to do this. He came back to me six months later and said, Jerome, you're right. I shouldn't have done this deal. How do I get out? And so it was an arm's length deal. They told them whatever, maybe things on his side, but there just wasn't a match there. So I, I do think that coming from relationships, it... it you get a better sense of how, how, this, how the firms work. Because some, some firms, they, they're on the cap table and they move on. And some firms are going to be riding you every quarter for, audit, for audited, for financials, for what they want. And it can be a little bit of a pain. You have to really know what you're getting into when you get into a deal. That founder that came to you six months later, is it possible to get out of a deal? What are the different strategies for that? Or once the ink's signed, it's signed. Yeah, I think, I think you have to look at it from the VC perspective. Is that, and this is when, when I was learning from, from Perlin, when I, was, when I was at NYU Stern taking classes there, is that you're going to do you know, seven or 10 deals and one of them is going to be a superstar. And you know, maybe, maybe two or three will kind of maybe break even, maybe a little bit up down and maybe the other five are going to flame out. So from the VC perspective is once they see a kind of a deal going sideways, they want to pull the ripcord and put, put their capital somewhere else. 
So they're going to they're, they're gonna want to pull out. On the other hand, if they think it's a promising venture, maybe the CEO is not ready. There's a, there's a CEO coach I know really well. He used to work with, he used to do this for portfolio companies. They would actually then bring in their own CEO who could kind of help scale and grow the company. But to, to your point, I think that, that the VCs want to put their money where they're going to get the most return. And if, and if your company is not one of them, then they're just going to, they're, they're going to do whatever they can to extract as much capital back as they can. And you're in a really bad spot. And so if there's a way you guys can, can break and walk away and you, know, you, can, you can still maybe work on your venture, you give them something, I, you know, maybe you have to, if they've got preferred shares, you, know, you look at the liquidation preference and see if you can work something out and, and maybe give them something back. Um, you know, they're they're going to they're going to want to put their capital somewhere else. So you're in a, you're in a tough spot if you're not you know, if you're not a superstar or you don't have potential to to at least, you know, be, be net positive for them. You had said earlier, time kills all deals. Yeah. Deals open it, you know, as quickly as they close. Do you have any stories or can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, great. That's a great point. I'll I'll tell you one. I had a a um, a client who's a fantastic, fantastic person, really well known person in the in um in his in his field. I don't want to get specifics. I don't want to reveal anything. But he had a couple of of celebrity, um, basically endorsers who were going to take a piece of the company and help him raise raise uh, raise money. And um, you know, we we tried to nail the deal and. I think this was you know, back in October of last year. By November, December, you know, their attorneys were looking at the docs. We got our the docs back to them. Um, but if we had the docs back to them, their attorney took a couple months to look at the docs. By the time it's March, you know, they've moved on to other things. They've got other opportunities have come, and they just lost interest in the deal. And it wasn't that it, it wasn't the right deal. It was just that that deal didn't happen in you know the first 30, 60 days when everybody, there was all the momentum going and all the excitement. And because it didn't happen, I, it just petered out. And, the, and I've seen that happen with other deals with clients where they'll have an investor come in and you get bogged down the details. And then the kind of the excitement, the momentum leaves. You really have about, I think, 30 days from to really, everybody's excited to get the deal done because successful people are really busy and new opportunities are going to come their way all the time. And if you don't have their attention, then they'll move on to other things. And I think that that's in the M&A world too. You've got an opportunity, you've got to seize it. So would that be considered deal fatigue? It's a really good principle to share. I think that where the deal fatigue comes in is you're, you're a seller. You've been working on a deal for, let's say, six, seven, eight months. It's the last hour. You've already signed docs. You're now at closing. Now the buyer wants a number of concessions. You're just so fatigued and tired. You just start to give in on all these last minute items and things that you would have never given in on before just because you're so desperate to do the deal. So what I tell sellers is, is you've got to have the staying power. You've got to have the passion. You've got to be rested. You've got to have your best game at the fourth quarter because that's when some of the last minute tricks and things can get pulled. And if you're desperate to do the deal, you won't be ready for them. So that's where the deal fatigue could come in where you're weary and you just want to sign docs and get it over with. And you end up agreeing to things that you would never agree to in the past. The other thing too, on the deal fatigue side is also 
if you're doing a deal and it draws out for six months, both sides get fatigued and they maybe one just says, I don't want to do this anymore on the other hand. And then they, they pull out. So they can be both sides. For those long deals or just any deal, how far in advance should the both sides start talking to each other? How well should they know each other? And is there a limit of what they should be sharing while in the due diligence phase? Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good point. And I remember, I think it was just last month, I had, we had a call. It was myself, the investment banker. It was the, the buyer and buyer's counsel. And we kind of had an intro kickoff call. And I, and I basically, I said, you know, they're obviously very experienced. I said, listen, here, here's kind of what I'm expecting. I don't want a first draft on the five yard line and we have to go 95 yards down the field to score a touchdown. I want a, not a heavily one-sided draft, but let's get a reasonable fair first draft that puts us on the 35 yard line and we can get 35 down yards to field and we both want to score. The other thing I said is, hey, we need to do a weekly call where we're all together and it creates momentum and, and it creates incentive for us to continue to push the deal together. So to your point about sharing information, um, I just think that you, know, you have in the beginning, you have NDAs in place, although you have to be really careful about what you're sharing and why you're sharing because there's, you know, there's horror stories out there of diligence that was done with the um, surreptitious motive. And so you have to be discerning about what information you share. But I, I think you do want to lay as much as you can out on the table in the beginning and set out, hey, here's, here's how we think the deal should go. So let's, let's be on the same page and let's work, to, let's work together to get the deal done. So I do think you've got you to set expectations. You've got to be on the same page. And you... You, uh, you know, obviously once you get to due diligence, you're sharing a lot, but, but before that you, you share enough to get the deal done, but you're careful about oversharing if it puts you in a, a competitor and a, and a better position. And then in these conversations, what are some of the points that normally surface that people will have discussions over? In terms of the, uh, the, the contract, the contract. Yeah. I, I think that the. I think the biggest, the biggest point of contention is going to be the purchase price. How, how is that structured? Uh, is there an earn out? How, w- w- what does that look like? And what is it going to take to achieve those milestones? So I think that's the first thing is going to be the purchase price. And the other thing is going to be the escrow holdback. What is going to be, what's, what's the buyer's sense of the risk on the employment side or tax issues? Or, you know, there's also a VAT tax issues that are really popular in e-commerce businesses if you're selling overseas. and they want to know the comp- they want to know you know what their tax liabilities are there's going to be you know consents if there's if you're working with uh, banks that have security interest in inventory or in in real estate or in your company you have to work through those issues but i think a lot of, there's a lot of that to be worked out i think the reps and warranties are heavily going to be heavily negotiated i think oftentimes the buyer may want you to make a rep as a as a seller on a third party. And what that means is, let's say, for example, you've got a couple different overseas vendors that you use. The buyer may say, hey, I want you to rep that the vendor is going to maintain costs at this level or is going to maintain prices. And you, know, you can't control what a third party is going to do. So you have to really be careful because some of those reps could, could lead to you know, some of the escrow money going over and, and tipping over into the buyer's pockets. And then and that brings up the point about 
rep and warranty insurance, which is typically if the deal is 20 million or over, you're going to have rep and warranty insurance. And that, that can ease some of the burden. But I, so I, to your question, so rep and warranties is going to be heavily negotiated. Um, I also think there's going to be negotiation over indemnification. It's going to be who kind of carving out liabilities. Certainly in the COVID world, I've seen a lot of action around material adverse condition and also ordinary course of business, you know, for, for your audience, meaning you, as a buyer, you have to, as a, sorry, as a seller, you have to operate your business in the, in the reasonable, ordinary way that you were. And what you need to do is tell the seller, sorry, tell the buyer, if you're making a change as a seller, hey, seller, listen, we need to do this change and we need your, we're letting you know. And then if the buyer unreasonably withholds the permission, then that's, a, that's something you can hang your hat on and you don't have to deal with break fees and things like that. So I think that, the, and especially in the COVID world, where things are changing on a dime, you have to be able to understand how to work within the, the confines of the agreement to, to ensure that either the deal closes or you don't have liability down the line if a deal breaks up and a buyer wants to come after you for their diligence and attorney and other fees. Especially sometimes buyers come in with heavy guns. They may have, you know, they may have big firms and big accounting firms that are expensive and lots of costs. You know, some, some buyers are on the cheaper side and have different deal partners. You have to be you know, wary of those things. Now, I want to ask you about what's changed over the COVID times. But before even that, during due diligence, maybe one side, maybe the company's not hitting their milestones. The buyer wants to lower the price or maybe the, the company exceeds the milestones that they talked about and want a higher price. Does that happen a lot or not? All the time. All the time. I think the, the buyers are... are are looking for deals, especially if the buyer doesn't have experience in this area. I think the buyers that know the area really well and understand it and understand the numbers, they've, they've dealt with a lot of the risk before. But I, my experience is if you have, let's say, a PE firm that's buying a company in a, in a new space, then they're going to be a little bit more price sensitive and they're maybe going to want to try to find ways to take a couple of haircuts to reduce their risk. You also have to understand too, the folks that are in these, these PE firms, their reputations are on the line. If they do a, a bad deal, it could be their career. So some of them are really risk adverse. And so if they can reduce some of the risk by, by knocking down the price, that puts them in a better position. So these conversations, yes, they happen all the time. I think on the on the seller side, and we've seen that you know last year was a record year for a lot of businesses, and we're seeing some of that tempered. So I think as a seller, you 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 need to really understand your business, understand where it's going, and you have to be able to tell a really good story about the revenue tells the story about your business. You have to tell a really good story, and if it if that story connects with the the buyer, and you hold firm, and you say, well. Instead of you being the, the, the one in the, in the defensive position, you tell the buyer, this is what I tell clients, this is, what I'm, this is what we're selling it for. And if you're interested still, we'd love to do a deal with you. If not, we're going to move on. And, and then the, seller, the buyer can either decide to move forward or not. But I think you have to take a hard stance and know what your walkaway point is so that you don't get grinded down on the, on the price. I like that. I like knowing your walkaway point. That's huge. Okay. You'd mentioned COVID. Yeah. I got to bring that up. Yeah. What's changed in the whole MMA landscape from your perspective 
during this this last year and a half? Yeah, it's it's a it's a virtual world, and so you've got you don't have attorneys pouring over bankers' boxes of diligence items, and you know traveling to you know the office of the of the acquisition. You've got virtual data rooms, which have already been in place. It just accelerated. One of my clients said, really smart, really smart client. He said, uh, you know, the COVID pushed the um, fast forward button on changes. So these are changes that are already going to happen. Now they're happening more. So what I'm what I'm seeing is virtual data rooms. I mean, virtual closings. There's really, I think that you should be meeting in person at least in the beginning. But after that, there's really not a lot of need unless you have inventory you need to see. There's not a lot of meeting in person. That's one thing. I think the 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 second thing is that I think there's a weariness in the market, Sean. Because especially for older sellers, and what I mean by that is they've been through um, the 2001, they've been through the the real estate mortgage crisis, the Great Recession, and now they're going through COVID, and they're just saying, "Okay, no moss. I'm ready to I'm ready to sell. I don't what what am I waiting for?" And I'm having a lot of these conversations for people that are just saying, "I was you know my business was." Double digit growth and here, and I had to, you know, we had to let go of half of our employees or 50 people, and it was just gut wrenching. And so I think sellers are more realizing, hey, my next, my next window, I'm going to build for my next window and I'm, and I'm going to go for it. I think there's some sellers who left things on the table that they wish they wouldn't have right before COVID or a year before or six months before. So I think that you've got sellers are more motivated and seeing, hey, I'm not, I don't want to do this again. So I think that's, that's a big change. You've got the virtual data rooms is a big change. I think money is a big change. I didn't think, Sean, did you ever think there'd be this much money, dry powder in the market? I mean, I would have never guessed, but there's so much money flowing through the systems right now. And, and it just, there's just a hunger for deals. So I think that's, a, that's been a surprising but big change. Okay, now let's say the deal goes through. How does the acquiring company make sure they maximize the value of what they've just acquired? That's that's great. Here's what I tell buyers, and I even will tell sellers. The post merger, when you've closed the deal, you think you've you've arrived. Now the hardest work is ahead of you. The hardest work is ahead of you. The work that you're going to have to do now is you're going to have to figure out how do we how do we merge these cultures, the people, the systems. It's, it's a lot of work. So this is what I tell the buyer. You, you go and you have an in-person dinner. I know it's COVID, and, but you do an in-person dinner. You bring your team, you, bring, you have everybody there, and you tell, the, you, you tell the seller's team who's still there, and they're scared. They don't know what's going to happen. You say, we come, and it's paraphrasing, hey, we come in peace. We're here to make this successful. And what you do is you, you share with them your diligence. You say, hey, here's what we've discovered over our time, pouring over your company, researching it. We think this is a fantastic company. Here's the strengths. Okay, here's the weaknesses that we see. Now, we want your help. We want you to help us. We want to turn this into a successful venture. And we all want you to participate in the success of this. And so we're all on the same page here. And let's, let's, let's celebrate. Let's get to know each other. And we're going to do you know, 30, 60, 90, six-month, 12-month 
We're going to have milestones, goals, check-ins. And this is an open office. This is an open communication. And, and set people at ease because people are afraid that they're going to get let go, are afraid that their comp's going to change, their benefits are going to change. They're afraid that they're going to get managed differently. There's a lot of fear that's going to run in now that you've got to deal with. And you want people to be comfortable and operate at a high level. And so not, not every... Now, there's some sellers who they've all had their options in stock and they're all going to participate. But, but some, you've got some companies where you know, that the, the employees uh, may not enjoy that kind of participation that the, that the owners are of the company. Now, what about, and this might seem odd, someone that's sold multiple companies or bought multiple companies, what happens over time? Do they get lazy at all or do they make mistakes? What do you see happens when this becomes a routine and not something special? You mean as, as far as going through the M&A process or just being an entrepreneur generally? Be going through the MMA process. I think that I think I see I see two kinds. I see some that are become veterans and they're just really upfront and they say, okay, here, listen, here's here's our company, here's where we're strong, and let me lay out to you our weaknesses. Here's where we're here's where here, here here's where we need help, here's where we need help. And we're looking for somebody who's gonna come in and who 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 knows the value, who's gonna be strategic and who can who can grow this thing. And then um I think to your point. I think that if you've done this one too many times, you're kind of thinking you're seeing what you saw before. For example, you see NFL coaches who you know, they have 12 and one, 12 and four records, 13 and three, and then all of a sudden it's seven and nine, eight and eight, you know, four and what happens is they stop innovating, they stop adjusting. So sometimes as an entrepreneur, what got you, what got you here won't get you there. And so you're going to need to have a learning open mindset, not that you know everything. Now, granted, if you've done a couple of deals, that's amazing, but there may be new things, new ways of thinking, new innovation, and you can't just necessarily rely on your old experience. You may have a new map going forward you got to think about. So, I mean, you've gotten to do a ton of transactions over your career. What was the biggest mistake, and leave out names, of course, mm-hmm. the biggest mistake or learning experience that you could pass on to our audience? I have, well, I have kind of a sad story. Um, I, we had a client that came to us after they, he had completed a deal. It was a media transaction. He had some, you know, had some family issues going on. He was really eager to just close the deal. And, and there's a whole host of mistakes. Number one, he, he, he really went cheap on the docs in terms of the, his counsel. And he accepted a lot of things in the documentation that he shouldn't have. That's one. Two was the, the, the buyer was embedded really well. And the, there was a seller carry provision. And, and essentially what happened was the, the buyer raided the company. The buyer basically you know, fronted as if they were financially sound. They had other companies. And they came in and you know paid sort of the upfront. They they got a loan to pay the upfront lump sum, and then they're supposed to be a seller carry. They're supposed to be a carry note, and the the buyer defaulted on the note, raided the company, and you know pulled the cash flow out, and um, we had to get a litigation counsel for the seller who eventually won. But in terms of what they spent on the 
litigation counsel versus what they ended up getting. And it just ended up being a terrible situation. And, and I think that the learning and we, we came in after the fact and trying to help clean things up. But I think that the, the, the thing that I have learned is, and and this deal is that unfortunately good things don't always happen to good people and bad things don't happen to bad people. You know, time and chance happens to everybody. And so you have to not let your emotions drive the deal. You have to let the deal itself unfold and make the right decision long-term. So never want to be in a hurry to do a deal with the wrong person because saying no to a deal. And if you say no to the wrong deal, that's an amazing decision. And now you've freed yourself up to say yes to the right one. So, so the, and something I've, I've learned, there was a, the guy named Chad Johnson, who's a, who's a really great coach that I've, I've now been working with. And he said, you know, saying yes is what got you here. Saying no is what's going to get you there. So you've got to be able to say no to the wrong deal. No matter what emotionally is happening, if you can do that, you'll free yourself up. If you don't, it could be one of the co- most costliest mistakes of your career. And Jerome, I forgot to ask at the beginning, what are all the steps in a deal? All the steps in the deal. Okay. So, so very beginning of, of the deal is you're going to put together a financial package. So if you're the seller, you, you basically want to get a quality of earnings that's going to be a really detailed financial analysis. The buyer is going to do their own, but as a seller, you're going to get a quality of earnings. You need basically trailing 12 months. You're going to have full financials. You're, you're then going to work with your investment banker, someone like yourself, and you're going to put together a deal package. And the, well, they're going to do it for you, but you're going to have to give them a lot of information to put a package together. And that package is then going to go out to a number of buyers under confidentiality. Once the, the, you solicit the buyers, you go under what's called LOI, a letter of intent. And then there's an exclusivity period that you negotiate. Hopefully, it's not too long. It's shorter, like 60 days. And there's various provisions that you end up negotiating there. And then once you finish the LOI, then you go into what's called due diligence phase. This is where the buyer is wanting to learn information, more information about the deal. And we advise... What I say is get the due diligence questions, get their, uh, they're going to have a list of, can be hundreds sometimes, but pages, but get their list of what their due diligence requests are and get that as soon as you can, if you're the seller, and then you start working on those items. And uh, then you get to the purchase agreement, the APA, it could be a stock, it could be a stock purchase. And then you go through a series of red lines and back and forths. And then meanwhile, parallel, you're doing uh, business uh, management calls. Then finally, you will have the documents. You'll have schedules. Well, they may have some conditions to close. There may be some some items that need to be wrapped up. There may be even a trans, what's called a TSA, a transition services agreement. If the deal can't close, there may be some utilities or other contracts that you're going to have to have a transition time for. You'll figure those deals out. Then there's an actual closing when. Um, Essentially, the buyer puts money in escrow and the, the deal actually closes. 
And then you know, all the assignments are made on the IP side, on the asset side. And then you walk away as a very happy seller, hopefully at the end of the process. And with that, Jerome, can you tell our audience 30 seconds, minute or, or some, just what you're up to these days? Yeah. So we're, we're really busy, which is great. And we're doing a, a lot of work on the capital growth side. So we've got clients that are raising either pre-seed, seed or alphabet rounds that we're working with. We've got clients that are going through the M&A process. And we've also been really active on the, the fund formation side. So clients that are starting venture and hedge funds. So we really see the whole ecosystem of the deal. We, we've, we represent companies, we represent investors, we represent funds. So we understand kind of the interest 360 degree of what they're getting into. And then I'll just tell you on the personal side, I've been getting out and enjoying some travel and golf and uh, getting to spend time with family and friends and, and, and enjoying kind of enjoying time to refresh and, and rejuvenate my mind so that when I'm working with clients, working on these deals, they require a lot of energy, but I'm there and I'm present and I'm excited and I'm loving and enjoying it. And with everything we talked about tonight or things we didn't even talk about, what's a key takeaway you want our listeners to go away with? So if you're, if you're a seller... Get the right team around you, investment banker, lawyer, accountant, and, and tax advisors, state planning. Second is be very selective about the, the buyer that you want to go with. Don't just go based on highest price. Go based on fit, objectives, your read of the situation, your advice from your, from your advisors. And then third is when you get the deal documents, read them. This is You've built your whole life. you built this business. You put your whole life into this. You owe it to yourself, take an afternoon off and read the docs and you'll have points and things you may didn't know. You may have business expertise that you can bring to the deal that, that you may see things that we may not see. And so I want you to read the docs. And if you're, if you're a, a, a buyer or if you're on the, the fun side, uh, this is a great time. And, uh, you know, just, just, Put your, put, your, put your capital to use and, uh, and make sure that you, when you do go to these companies, you come in peace, you have the deal dinner, you tell them strength and weaknesses, you invite them into the process, help them participate in the success, and that'll help you build the venture long run. Fantastic. And Jerome, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? You can go directly to www.fpgeneralcouncil.com. That's our firm, Vogel and Patamianos. We have offices in LA and Austin. You can also just email me directly, jfogel at fpgeneralcouncil.com. That's J-F-O-G-E-L at fpgeneralcouncil.com. We'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience, please go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. All, all our social media handles are the Silicon Valley Podcast. Uh, mine are also Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N-S-V. Check us out, leave a comment, and we know you got a lot of great information from this interview. Please, when you're on iTunes, Spotify, or any of the platforms, give us a, a nice review. It encourages us to keep the content going. And if you want to know more about investment banking, reach out to me on my LinkedIn when I'm not doing this podcast. That is what I do during the day, focusing on mid-markets, mergers, acquisitions, growth capital, and secondaries. And I'm always happy to talk. And with that, Jerome, 
I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Love what you're doing and just excited to be able to connect with your audience. Thank you so much.